Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. Um, I know that a lot of you regularly come here, and Maple Avenue is your church home, and uh, we're so glad that you could join us. We're particularly glad, though, that uh, family and friends could be with us this morning, and so I just want to extend a special welcome to you. Thank you for being with us. We're so glad that you have joined us. In fact, we have a friend all the way from Trinidad Tobago, so I won't point him out as to embarrass him, but um, it's just kind of cool that there's someone here that's further away even than uh, Timmins, Terry. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, so it just, it's just kind of neat that we're all gathered, to hear, gathered here together by God's providence and His goodness towards us. The text for this morning is Psalm 136. It is page 520 in the Pew Bibles, the Black Bibles in front of you. And if you will, join me in the reading of God's Word. If you could stand with me in honor of God's Word. Psalm 136, we will read all 26 verses. Let me read aloud as you follow along in your copy of God's Word. Give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who by understanding made the heavens, for His steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon king of the Amorites for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og king of Bashan for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. You may be seated. Father, we come before you, Father, as your people, and Father, we confess our desperate need for you. 
Father, your word tells us that apart from your son Jesus, we can do nothing. And so God, I pray that you'd be with us during this time. Father, help me to make your word plain and clear to your people. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would receive your word. And Lord, that we would be changed by it, that we would be challenged by it, that we would be transformed by means of your truth. And so God, I pray that you would accomplish what you desire to accomplish here this morning. God, I pray that you would receive the glory and that we would receive the joy. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you, what is basically wrong with the human race? How would you answer that question? Just answer it in your own minds. Perhaps some of you would say that, well, man or woman is selfish and self-centered. And still others would say, well, man does not love himself enough. Others would say that man has too high a view of themselves. Others would say that man has too low a view of themselves. Or some might suppose that man is in a less than ideal environment and that's what causes him to have issues and problems. Or if you're a Christian, you would say that man is sinful. Or perhaps put slightly differently, that man does not give glory to God. It's quite interesting to me that when the Apostle Paul paints a picture of the human race... He brings two things to the surface in order to paint the human race. One of these things is expected. The other is kind of unexpected. In Romans 1.21, Paul writes this. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it to you. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now, we expect Paul to say, humanity's problem is that they don't honor God. To me, though, we don't really expect Paul to say they didn't thank God. So according to Paul, one of the fundamental problems of the human race is that we are ungrateful people. And I think that our psalm addresses that problem for us this morning. Let me just kind of paint for us just a wee bit of a picture of that for us. That we know that we need to be thankful, we know that we ought to be thankful, and we might resolve, especially at a time like this, to be thankful, but that's short-lived. We're thankful for the little things, we see the silver lining in our life circumstances, but again, that's rather short-lived. And so I want us to be helped by the psalm this morning. I think the psalmist gives us deep reasons for our thanksgiving. He gives us deep cause for us to be grateful and thankful in all seasons and all times to the God from whom all blessings flow. Before I get into the psalm, though, I just want to ask you where you're at this morning. Because I know that there are some of you who have walked into this auditorium with your hearts full. You have a good job. Your life is full of good circumstances. You have a good marriage. Your kids love to be at home and all of your family's home this weekend. Time with your family is full of laughter, games, watching football. And your wife is an amazing cook and there's a turkey in the oven even as we speak. But there's another group of you that have walked into here and your hearts are heavy. You feel like you're kind of drifting through life. And it's easy for you to compare your situation with others and find that yours is less than ideal. 
When your family gets together, there's often conflict and ugliness. And if it's not that, then the holidays remind you of loss. Or it's, you, even, you feel even lonelier than you normally would. And to be quite frank, if Thanksgiving didn't come around at all, that would make my life easier. Well, friends, whether your heart is full or empty this morning, whether you're in that first category or that second category or anywhere in between, let me assure you that God has a word for you this morning. A word to encourage you and a word to enlarge your vision of his great love towards you. Was that not the refrain of the psalm? Over and over and over again. I want to just kind of keep reading all the first lines, but it, it stops us. And every single verse says, For his steadfast love endures forever. And there's, so, so there's no doubt as to what the theme of the psalm is. And so I just want to, us to turn there to Psalm 136. And if you're taking notes this morning, let me just give, you, give to you the outline. I like to know where the preacher is going when he's preaching, and so let me do to you likewise. Sermon outline is this. A call to give thanks in verses 1 through 3. A call to give thanks in verses 1 through 3 for his loyal love in the past, verses 4 through 22. For his loyal love in the past, verses 4 through 22. And for his loyal love towards you, verses 23 through 25. So firstly, a call to give thanks in verses 1 through 3. Three times the psalmist repeats this call, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks, and he circles around to it again in verse 26. And so there's no question as to what the desired result or the outcome of the psalm is. It is that we are to be more thankful people. Now there's two ways to hear this command, give thanks. The first of them is kind of like a slap on the wrist. You're a Christian, you have lots of blessings, you know you should be thankful, why aren't you more thankful? That's one way to hear this command. But if that was the case, then I could just kind of sit down and we could be on our way. And I don't think it's getting at the intent of the psalmist. The second way to hear this command is in this way. Yes, you are a Christian, and because of that, you ought to be thankful. But the way to go about doing that is not by simply being more thankful or by strengthening your thanksgiving muscles. The way to go about being more thankful is to see afresh the loving kindness and the goodness of the Lord towards you and towards his people. And the reason is because the psalmist is convinced that as you see afresh the loving kindness and the goodness of the Lord towards you, that you will naturally be more thankful. And that is why the psalm, the majority of the psalm is focused not at commanding you to be thankful, but the majority of the psalm is focused on displaying for us the love of God in creation and all of history and in our lives. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the loving kindness of the Lord on display throughout creation and throughout history. Let me just note, note to you just three things about our God in verses 1 through 3. Very simple, but firstly, He is good in verse 1. Secondly, He is great in verses 2 and 3. He is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the one true and living God, and He is the supreme sovereign over all things. And thirdly, this God is a God of loving kindness, which is repeated for us three times. So that's what we're to do. We are called to give thanks. The perennial question of the child, though, is why? Why shall we give thanks? And that's what 
The psalmist goes on to answer in the rest of the psalm. So why are we to do it? Second point, for his loyal love in the past. For his loyal love in the past, verses 4 through 22. And here, basically, the psalmist is recounting the creation account and then significant events in the life and the history of Israel. And for both of these, we're going to kind of just walk through the verses, and then we're going to talk about what that might mean for you and for me, with the implications of that. And the thing that I want us to see is that the supreme God is using all of the powers available to him for the good of his people. And he is doing that because he is driven by this steadfast, unwavering love towards undeserving people like you and me. And so that's kind of the overarching theme, but let's kind of look at the specifics. Let's look firstly at creation, verses 4 through 9. God made the world with great power and with great wisdom. And he did what he alone can do by separating the skies above from the seas below. And the imagery here is that of God pounding the earth like a piece of sheet metal over the waters. And so God's laid the foundation. He's made the heavens above and the earth below. And And the psalmist is clear to point out that God alone, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God that we believe in, that he alone is able to do these things. And then God mentions the two great lights, the sun to rule over the day and the moon to rule over the night. And when we talk about creation, I think particularly as Christians, I think that we, our minds can kind of tend towards a debate. Whether that's you know, evolution versus creationism, whether that's um, athe- or naturalism versus theism, whether that's young earth, old earth, um, and our minds kind of tend towards that direction. And while those things are important, that's not the emphasis of the psalmist here. Let me try and paint a picture of that for you. As most of you know, I am a big fan of rugby union. And I used to play from grade 9 to 12. I no longer play, but I still follow some of the teams and the leagues, particularly those in the Southern Hemisphere. And there's perhaps no greater rugby nation in the world than New Zealand. Now, those from Wales, if there's anyone from Wales, you might, di- you might beg to differ. But, but my argument is that New Zealand is the rugby nation of the world. The, their national team is dominant on the world stage. And if you're a sports person, then you've probably seen the little dance that they do before their games, the haka. If you haven't seen that, go on YouTube that once you get home. Not right now. Um, and if you've ever met a Kiwi or a New Zealander, especially if he is a man, it is likely that you have met a rugby man. And, the entire, and, and every young boy in New Zealand dreams of becoming an all-black one day, playing for the national team. The entire nation is behind this team. And so we could say then, built into the fabric and the, of the culture of New Zealand is a love for rugby and a support for the all-blacks. And what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 136 is that built into the fabric of creation is God's steadfast love towards his creatures and towards his people. That when we look to and consider creation, we should see God's hand of care and love towards us. That's the emphasis of verses 4 through 9. Well, how is this so? Well, have you ever imagined a world without the sun? I was reading an article about this, and I'm not sure of all the I'm not sure how accurate it is. I mean, it's all hypothetical. But let me just read to you what would happen if the sun were to suddenly disappear. The earth and all the other planets would retain their forward motion and fly off into 
outer space. We would have heat and light for a whole total of nine minutes, because that's how long it takes for the sun's rays to travel to the earth. The moon would disappear because the moon is simply a mirror of the sun's rays. And then according to one calculation, the earth's temperature would drop below negative 120 degrees Celsius in a matter of two months. And by that time, obviously, all the surfaces of the oceans across the globe would be frozen over. All photosynthesis would stop, obviously, meaning that food supplies would be cut off. And life on earth as we know it would obviously cease. Friends, God knew what he was doing when he created the universe. Scientists say that the sun, the moon, and the earth are perfectly positioned in relation to one another in order to be able to have life on earth, in order for life to be possible. And so what the psalmist is saying, by this continued repetition of for his steadfast love endures forever, for his steadfast love endures forever, what he's saying is that when God created the world, when he created the universe, built into that creation was a care and a concern and a love for his people. This is the point of verses 4 through 9. That when we would feel the rays and the heat off of the sun, that when we would eat a, a freshly picked apple, that when we would enjoy all the beauties of creation that we would see in it, the love and the commitment of God towards us. And speaking of the apple, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but so Alyssa and I, so obviously you haven't thought about Alyssa and me going to an orchard, but so Alyssa and I love going to orchards, um, and I just find that time just so relaxing and refreshing just to be out in God's creation. And just so neat, I think, because we don't have this in Alberta. We certainly didn't have it in California where they're in a perpetual state of drought. But you just kind of walk down the orchards, and when the trees are ripe, I mean, the, the apple, the tree, or when the trees are ripe, the trees are full of apples, hundreds of trees on each tree. And you just kind of walk down, and you can take, take the apple off the tree, bite into it, so juicy, so sweet, and so free, because you're obviously not getting that one weighed. But... Um, <laughs> And so it's pleasing to the eye, it's pleasing to the mouth. And let me just say this, God did not have to do that. God could have just given us, I don't know, liver and onions or whatever to eat all the day long. Um, He did not have to make it pleasing to our, our sight. He did not have to make it pleasing to our mouth. And my friends, we're talking like right now after the fall. And so even under the curse, these things are available to us. And so just the kindness of God. And so just allow the created world, allow what God has made, the things that we get to enjoy, to remind you of his care and his kindness towards you. Second, let us see God's loyal love in the history of his people. The psalmist recounts a fairly significant time in the history of God's people and from verses 10 through 22. This is essentially when Israel became a nation. God had chosen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob prior to this, but it is through these events of the Passover, and then uh, I guess it would be the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, and then the conquest, and then their entrance into the promised land. It is through those events that Israel became and was birthed into a nation. In other words, fairly significant events. And what we're going to do again is just kind of walk through the events as the psalmist lays them out, and then we're going to talk about the implications for God's people. And I want us to just pause here for a moment. Let me just say this. That when 
the Bible records for us history, and I hope that you saw that in James' sermon on Judges 1, but when, when the Bible records for us historical events, that is, things that have happened in the past, and they relate those, that information to us, they're not just giving us a history lesson, right? They're trying to teach us some truth, some biblical truth. And most often, because God is the main character in all of the Bible, those or those historical events, as they're recorded, are trying to teach us something about God. And so as we talk about these historical events, I don't want you to just take them as a historical, or like a history lesson. I want us to learn something about the God who is behind all of these actions and these events, even as we consider them together. Because that is the intention of the psalmist. With all that being said, let's begin in verse 10 and work our way down to verse 22. The first thing that the psalmist mentions is the tenth and the final plague upon Egypt. When the angel of death swept across the land of Egypt and struck down every firstborn from the house of Pharaoh to the house of the slave of all of the Egyptians. And next we come to the Exodus. And what's significant here is that Israel historically had been in the land of Egypt, for 430 years by this point. And for probably a good portion of that, they were under an oppressive ruler in Pharaoh. And finally, God was coming to deliver his people out from bondage and from out from slavery. And God does this in the most amazing and miraculous of ways. He doesn't just like teleport them, you know, like we would do if we were writing the script. But he actually brings, he actually takes them out of Egypt brings them to this massive large body of water, and he splits the Red Sea in two and causes Israel to, to cross through on dry land. Once Israel is through to the other side, God causes the waters to come crashing down on Pharaoh and his armies. And then in verse 16, we are told of the wilderness wanderings. And in that one verse, the psalmist covers 40 years. And I just want you to notice something. It is because of the people's unbelief and sin that they failed to enter into the promised land and they had to, and had to be in the wilderness for 40 years. None of that's mentioned here. The focus and the attention and the spotlight of the psalmist is not on the people's failure, but it is on the loving kindness of God in the way that he recounts the historical record. Okay, so 40 years covered by verse 16, and then we come to the end of that uh, 40 years, and Israel is now told to go and conquer the promised land, even as it has been promised to them. God gives them victory over mighty and great kings. Sihon and Og are two of them. And then at the end of it all, Israel is allowed entrance into the promised land, and it is given to them as a heritage. And so they've gone from slavery in Egypt under an oppressive ruler to being... um, I guess, servants of God in their own land, in the promised land. But again, what is the point of all this? I told you that this teaches us something about God. Let me just offer to you just a few suggestions. Is it perhaps to show Yahweh's supremacy over the Egyptian gods? Perhaps. Is it to judge the Canaanite nations for their wickedness and cruelty? Maybe. James mentioned this in his judges' sermon. Or is it to display God's great power in dividing the Red Sea and giving military victory to Israel? It's possible. But I don't think that 
any of those are the main point why the psalmist brings these events up. And again, I get that from the very fact that the narrative is slowed down after every verse by this refrain, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let me try and illustrate this for you. I know that, some, I know that there are some baseball fans in the room. So when you go to a Jays game at the Rogers Center, what are you there to do? Are you there to eat an overpriced hot dog? Are you there to donate your money to the 50-50 raffle? Are you there to make small talk with the person sitting beside you who is awkwardly cheering for the opposition? Are you there to inspect the architecture of the dome, impressive as that might be? Are you there to roam downtown Toronto before or after the game? No. While some of those things might be fine and dandy, you are there to watch the game. That is your primary purpose for being there. And so when the writer of Psalm 136 brings these events up, some of the other reasons that I brought up might be in the back of his mind. They might be secondary reasons as to why he's bringing these events up. So the secondary reasons might be Yahweh's supremacy over false gods, Yahweh's judgment of the nations for for their wickedness, and Yahweh's great power in delivering his people. But none of these are the primary reason that the psalmist is bringing these events up, at least in this psalm. So what is the primary reason? Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 2, verses 23 and 25. That's page 46 in the Pew Bible. So Exodus 2, verses um, 23 to 25. Let me read that for us. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God bearing her heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Do you want to know why the psalmist brought up the events that he did in Psalm 136? Because he wants his people, the congregation before him, to understand that God was bringing about those things. He was carrying out those actions to demonstrate and to show to his people and to the world that he is a God who makes good on his promises. You see, God was delivering Israel not because they were wonderful, not because they were righteous in and of themselves, not because they found their own way to God, but because he had made a covenant with their first ancestor, Abraham, and then with his son, Isaac, and then with his son, Jacob. And God was saying, I am a God who keeps my promises. I am a God who has entered into covenant with my people, and I will see to it that my promises become and are fulfilled. And this is the event that kickstarts the whole thing. God remembering his covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob. This is Exodus 2. Exodus 3 and 4 is the birth and the calling of Moses. Beyond that is the ten plagues upon Egypt. And then beyond that is the deliverance of Israel out of bondage from Egypt. My friends, the psalmist is bringing these events up to make the simple point that God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. 
Let me just say these things to you that I wrote down. The psalmist wants his congregation to know and to grasp that God is immensely dedicated to fulfilling his promises. And this is all because he has committed himself in covenant love towards his people. Let me end this section by talking about Alyssa's grandma. Alyssa's grandparents are Mennonites, and they spent the most, or they've spent their whole lives living in Western Canada. They are from humble means, um, and I remember my father-in-law sharing with me a story about how his dad was happy when they retired because they were getting more money than they ever did before. <laughs> so they, they're uh, from humble means. Both of them are true believers, and they love their Savior, genuine believers. Um, but unfortunately, several years ago, Alyssa's grandpa contracted uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, which obviously meant that life would become very difficult for grandma. Um, they were living in a home together, and, and, and he would kind of walk out the front door, and he would be down, you know, streets or even blocks before she would realize, and then she had to go find him. And so you can just imagine the fear that would have arisen in her heart. Uh, he would not recognize her as his wife, and so tell her to get lost. And he was declining even in his ability to care for his personal hygiene. So you can just imagine what all that would entail. And I remember sitting at the table with her at the dinner table. I think it was Alyssa's family, myself. Well, I guess I'm part of her family. Alyssa's family and then grandma. And, with, and we were just asking her how it was going. And with tears in her eyes, I remember her telling us a few things, but two of them stood out to me. The first was that she said that she would just, someday she would just run to the bathroom, close the door, and just pray. Pray to her Savior to help her to get through the day, and that she would not know where she would be if it were not for him. And second, this is amazing, second she said, I promised him, not, not the Lord, but her husband, I promised him for better or for worse, and I intend to make good on that promise. And she has, and she is, to her husband of over 50 years, to a man who sometimes doesn't even remember her, to a man who is, because of his dementia, just in some, in, you know, unkind to her, that she is committed to him as her husband, even though he is deteriorating day by day. And fr- friends, this is the kind of love with, with, God, with which God loves his people. This is the kind of love with which God loves his own, you and me, if we are in Christ. And if the writer of Hebrews is right, where he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, well then what was true of God then is true of the God that we serve now and today. Which brings us to our third and final point. We should give thanks to God for his loyal love towards you. For his loyal love towards you in verses 23 to 25. Everything up until this point has been in the past. The psalmist was demonstrating and showing the loyal love, the covenant love of God towards his people in the, in the event of creation and in the, significant, in the significant events of Israel's history. But then in all, all of a sudden, verse 23 he brings the matter down to his present situation. 
So the loving kindness that we have seen on display, the loyal love that we have discussed, the covenant commitment that we have heard of, all of that is ours if we're in Christ. And my friends, this is your comfort and your security if you are in Christ. The God who has created everything and the God who rules over all things has committed himself in covenant with you if you are in Jesus Christ. My friends, God is not a a friend who deserts his friends. God is not a father who forsakes his children. And God is not a husband who abandons his bride. Friends, I know that there are people in this congregation, whether here or couldn't be here today, that are struggling and that are hurting. And Ed, and Ed made allusion to pro, or mention of you know, five or six of those people and families. I know that there's people hurting. I know that there's people struggling. I know that this Thanksgiving is maybe not as ideal as you would or they would like it to be. Let me give you just two points of encouragement as it relates to the text. The first is found in Psalm 136, verse 23. Let me turn there again. Psalm 136, verse 23. The psalmist writes, It is he who remembered us in our lowest state. Friends, if you are in Christ, then God sees you where you are at. That is, if you're a Christian... God knows your situation, and he is deeply and greatly concerned about it. He has a great steadfast love towards you, even as you struggle in this world. And he has promised us that one day he will bring an end to the hurt and to the pain and to the struggle. That he will bring us out from our lowest state and take us to the happiest and the brightest of places. Remember that Israel was in bondage for 430 years. And it was only the generation that was alive at the time of Moses that got to see God's mighty hand of deliverance. And so God doesn't always act according to our own timetable. God doesn't always act in exactly the way that we wish. But the encouragement of the psalm is that your eyes would be taken off of your circumstances and your hurt and your pain, and it would be directed to the God of heaven who has committed himself in covenant love to you and with you. The God whose love has no end, the God who is immensely faithful to his promises. The second encouragement is this. It's a little bit more conceptual. Our lives, though it might seem long to us, is just a sliver in the history of the world. And as a result, when our focus is just on our lives and our circumstances, then we have a pretty small picture of the entire thing. And so you could just imagine with me a mural. I don't know where the biggest... Maybe a mural against that entire wall there. And the the picture contains that entire wall. And if you were to just look at a piece of that mural, let's say the size of that page there well, then you're getting just a small glimpse of the entire thing. You know, you might see a man's face, you might see a portion of the ground, you might see a piece of the sky, but you're not getting the full picture. And so you actually have to step step back far enough in order to see the entire thing. And so it is with God's plan for the world 
and for us. That if we were to just look at our lives, it might be difficult for us to discern exactly what he's doing or how he is accomplishing his good purposes. But let me assure you that when we look back upon the panoply of history, that when we look back, when all is said and done, that we will look back and say, if we are his people, that God has been nothing but loving and kind and caring towards us. That when all is said and done and we look back upon the entirety of history and our place in that story, that we will look back and see that it was God's hand of care and heart of steadfast love that was driving it all along. Let me conclude with this story from church history. So we've been studying church history in our Bible class hour. And I love church history. I think it's just fascinating in and of itself. And I think it helps us to to understand and to see the shoulders of the men that we stand upon. And one such man whose shoulders we stand upon is a man by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius was the bishop or pastor in Alexandria, Egypt in the 4th century. And he played a crucial role in the defense of Trinitarian theology and doctrine. And Athanasius had many enemies, both for political and theological reasons. And so in February of 358 AD, his enemies conspired to move the armies of Rome against him and against his church. And so as his church was gathered, just like we are today, the Roman armies surrounded the church with swords drawn. And obviously the people were frightened by the whole, whole ordeal. You can just imagine if like the RCMP or a SWAT team was like lining our church with like guns, you know, drawn or something like that. You don't know what Athanasius did? <laughs> he didn't tell people to, you know, find the closest exit and pull the fire alarm or something like that. He led his congregation to sing, sing Psalm 136. And so 26 times, because basically Athanasius would read, I'm guessing, read the first line, and the congregation would, would repeat, for his love endures forever. And so 26 times this congregation roared and thundered, for his love endures forever. The soldiers burst through the doors, um, you know, and the congregation, and Athanasius fled. They regathered. Many were killed in Alexandria that night. But one thing rang loud and clear in the minds and hearts of Athanasius and his congregation, that the love of the Lord endures forever, that his love has no end. My friends, this is our comfort and this is our security, that the God who has made everything and that the God who rules over history and the God who reigns now has committed himself to you And to me, if we are in Christ, in covenant love and loyal love, and because of that, we can give thanks. Right? That's how the psalm ends. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his love endures forever. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Such a wonderful psalm, such an uplifting psalm. Thank you for speaking to us today. Jesus, you are the head of your church meaning that you have the right to rule over it, but you are also the very lifeblood of your church, meaning that you give to us life and sustenance. Thank you that you give us 
food and power and strength by means of your word. Father, I pray that you will cause us to be more thankful to you as a result of the great things that you have done for us and for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.